Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 17, War of the Eagles. When we last left off, we had just finished looking at how things on the Western Front played out over the first months of the war. The Allied counterpush at the Marne had stopped the Schlieffen plant dead in its tracks. In the subsequent engagements along the Assane River, the Allied and German armies both desperately sought a breakthrough, but instead found themselves in a series of interlocking battles which made their way northward until reaching the coast of the English Channel. The final attempt, culminating at the battles of the Yezer River and Ypres, resulted in a strengthening deadlock along the front line. With no breakthrough in sight, the troops began to fortify their entrenched positions, and the complex system of connected trench networks became more prolific throughout the winter months. But things in the West were not happening in a vacuum. The events on the Eastern Front had a profound impact on events in the West, and as I said at the end of last day, we will swing our focus to the East and account for the much different war which is unfolding there. To begin, I want to start by saying that the Eastern Front is a much different animal than that of the West. Unlike the West, where we can easily trace the movements of the armies from the invasion of Belgium to the race for the sea, events in the East do not grant us that sort of convenience. The greater expanse of geography allowed for the combatant armies to move with greater mobility, and as a result there were a lot of moving parts to try to account for. In August-September, there were four separate theaters which erupted simultaneously of each other. Serbia, East Prussia, Galicia, and the Polish salient. So right off the bat, the chronology shifts far too regularly which makes it difficult to construct a coherent narrative. So we are going to approach these in a bit of an unorthodox fashion. This week, we will focus on the campaigns in Serbia and East Prussia, and pick up next day with the latter two. The Serbian and East Prussian theaters began first, so by chronology that makes sense, but they were also on the periphery in terms of geography, so by going at it this way we can start on the outside and work our way inwards. I admit, I was caught a bit off guard by the amount of activity which occurred in the first two months and almost got sidetracked, so this is a much easier way to go about this. I posted a couple of maps to the Great War Podcast.podbean.com because if you are like me, your geography of this region is a little hazy. For Konrad von Hutzendorf, the Serb-hating chief of staff of Austria-Hungary, the war began on a frustrating note. If you will recall from our episodes on the July Crisis, Hutzendorf had used the death of Franz Ferdinand to put forth his agenda for a preemptive strike against Serbia. But his plans hit a bit of a speed bump when it became clear that Russia, despite repeated warnings from Berlin, were not going to back down from their Slavic allies a second time. When news arrived that Tsar Nicholas II had issued for general mobilization, Hutzendorf found that his best laid plans had gone to waste. He had gotten his war with Serbia, but it irresponsibly coaxed the Russians in as well. Russian mobilization meant that the Austrian army would have to begin the war on the defensive and help shield Germany from an attack coming from the east, as the bulk of German forces were required in the west, as the Schlieffen plan demanded. Given this new set of circumstances, Hutzendorf was forced to turn to Plan B, or rather Plan R, which was the Austrian war plan in the event of a two-front conflict against Serbia and Russia. Plan R, like its German counterpart, called for two-thirds of its mobilized forces to be sent to the frontier of Russian Poland and Glacia, while the third force, Army Group B, make their way down to Serbia, envelop Belgrade, and then hop on trains heading north to be deployed in support of the Glacian incursion. The thought of fighting the Russians alone while the Germans were occupied in the west terrified Hutzendorf, yet he did not feel that all hope was lost. The Austrian chief had expected that while the Tsar's forces were putting their final touches on mobilization, it should take Army Group B, the detachment heading to Serbia, only two weeks to complete their objective. In his final meeting with Franz Joseph prior to the invasion, 
Hutzendorf had ensured the aging emperor in his most colorful language that the kingdom of pig breeders, referring to the Serbs, was a non sequitur, while Joseph solemnly wished that all would be well and that the Habsburg monarchy would triumph in the face of this new challenge. But beneath this show of optimism, both men knew that the Serbs were more than prepared for the reckoning. Like something straight out of a James Bond novel, the Serbs had uncovered the Austrian plan of attack through the work of a double agent employed by the Russians. This agent was Alfred Vettel. Alfred Vettel had been a colonel in the Austrian senior staff, but sometime in 1901, the Russians had begun blackmailing him by threatening to release evidence pertaining to his private life. Vettel was a homosexual, who according to the Russians had an extensive list of lovers both young and old. If such information were to become public, it would be the end of his career, and more than likely result in his execution, as homosexuality was a capital offense. So between 1901 and 1913, Vettel had begun to pass information to the Russians, who paid handsomely, and in turn gave him bogus stats to feed Vienna regarding Russia's military strength. Through his efforts, St. Petersburg acquired detailed war plans pertaining to both Serbian and Russian invasions, and dutifully passed this knowledge on to Belgrade. Although Vettel was eventually busted through German counterintelligence, Vienna could do little to change their overall plan, as that meant having to reconfigure the spaghetti of railway lines, and more crucially, convince the Germans that they could still fulfill their part of the Schlieffen plan. In the wake of his unmasking, Vettel, on the urging of Hutzendorf, shot himself with a revolver. The Austrian invasion began when Army Group B crossed the Seva and Drina rivers on August the 12th, under the command of Oskar Pechorek, the military governor of Bosnia. Oskar Pechorek, like Hutzendorf, shared a fanatical hatred for the Serbs, but Pechorek's displeasure of the Slavs had recently become personal. In a cruel twist of fate, Pechorek had been the key organizer of Franz Ferdinand's itinerary for the Archduke's visit to Bosnia, which we all know hit an unfortunate snag. This black mark on his resume led him to initiate a police crackdown on the Bosnian Slav population, which arrested hundreds of suspected conspirators. Despite their mutual disdain of the Slavs, Hutzendorf and Pechorek were personal rivals, which made the Bosnian governor thirst for military glory. He had been passed over for chief of staff back in 1906, when Franz Ferdinand had put forth Hutzendorf's name for nomination, and he was determined to make the Serbian invasion as smooth as possible to help boost his own reputation. The Serbs, however, were waiting for the Austrian incursion, and had taken up positions on the mountainous high grounds overlooking the Seva and Drina rivers. The overall Serbian commander, General Radomir Putnik, had some 300,000 men under his leadership, who, like himself, were veterans of the Balkan Wars. He was also assisted by some 40,000 Montenegrins, who, like the Serbs, remembered that it was the Austrians who had stripped them of territory in Albania following the London talks of January-May 1913. So for the Slavs, this was an opportunity to settle some old scores. From what I can piece together, the Serbs fought with a form of aggressiveness and reckless abandonment which the Austrians were not prepared for. The August 12th invasion would be forced out of Serbia in just 12 days of near-round-the-clock fighting. On September 7th, Pechorek would be forced to try again, after Putnik launched a counterattack of his own into Bosnia, and had gotten within a dozen kilometers of Sarajevo. In the Bosnian capital, the incarcerated Gavrilo Princip was packed up and moved north, when the smoke and echo of the Serbian guns could be heard on the horizon. It would take until late October to relieve Sarajevo, and for seven weeks, Pechorek would chase Putnik throughout the countryside, before cornering the Serbian general and capturing Belgrade by early December. Despite the loss of their capital, Putnik and the Serbs were not done, which goes to show it pays to have friends in high places. The Russian foreign minister Sergei Zazanov 
had struck a deal with the French to send a shipment of supplies and ammunition, which arrived via neutral Greece, another Balkan War ally of the Serbs. On December 3rd, Putnik unleashed a counterattack of such velocity that many troops of Army Group B fled in panic, abandoning their artillery pieces which were already months overdue for their arrival in Galicia. This time, however, the Austrian defeat was for good. The retreating army would dig in on the north bank of the Seva, but no Austrian soldier would step foot in Serbia again until 1915. Essentially, an operation which was supposed to take two weeks took four months, and was a total disaster. Serbia remained intact, which meant the Austrians would continually need to maintain a garrison near the Seva. It is important to point out that although the Balkan theater was a bit of a sideshow to the greater offenses in 1914, it did have a profound impact which should not go unstated. Due to the tenacity and fighting spirit of the Serbian defenders, it required Hutzendorf to weaken his forces in Glacia, which meant that his invasion of Russian Poland, which we will talk about next day, was substantially undermanned. This did not bode well for his relationship with the Germans, who increasingly came to see their junior allies as a burden. Like the German invasion of Belgium, the Serbs and Austrians committed atrocities against civilians, although reliable information is difficult to come across. What makes numbers difficult to place is that many of the Serbian call-ups had fought without proper uniforms, and so trying to distinguish civilian from combatant is tricky. But based on the underlying ethnic hatred between the two sides, it is not difficult to imagine that guilt is shared. At the town of Sabek, Pechorik had ordered the massacre of at least 80 civilians, while Putnik's counteroffensive in September saw widespread pillage and looting. Overall, Serbian forces took some 113,000 casualties, reducing its fighting strength by almost half, while the Austrians, 148,000. In the wake of this disaster, Oskar Pechorik submitted his resignation and lived out his retirement before dying in 1933. At the same time as the Austrian invasion, the Russians officially entered the fight on August the 17th. Since the yawning days of July, the French had been pressuring them to launch a major offensive of their own, to relieve pressure on the west once the war had gotten started. For the Stavka, the Russian high command, the most suitable target was East Prussia. The decision to attack in East Prussia was a mathematical one. Two large Russian armies were already positioned to strike into the region, while the Germans had left only one, the 8th Army, whose orders were to protect the frontier at all costs. But behind the numbers, East Prussia held special significance. It was not only the birthplace of Bismarck, it was also seen as the cultural center of German aristocracy, and all the big players, including the Kaiser and Chancellor, had summer vacation homes in the region. In other words, it was pretty much sacred ground. It was generally viewed as the cordon between civilized Europe and the Slav-infested East. Despite being at a numeric disadvantage, the German 8th Army was much better organized and had a tendency to view their Russian counterparts with contempt. As the late historian J.F.C. Fuller remarks, the Russian soldier in the First World War was little more than a big-hearted child who thought out nothing and was surprised by everything. The Russian foray into East Prussia began on August the 17th, just as the battles of the frontiers were getting underway in France and Belgium. The Russian First Army, commanded by General Paul von Rennenkampf, headed in from the west, just north of the Missourian Lakes, while the Second Army under Alexander Samsonov and his well-developed beard marched northwest in the direction of Tannenberg. Upon realizing Rennenkampf's near 2-to-1 advantage in manpower, the German 8th Army General Maximilian von Privitz ordered a hasty retreat to the River Vistula, after a pitched contest fought at Gambunen between the 19th and 21st. His retreat left the door open for Rennenkampf to advance deeper into German soil. Meanwhile, on the Western Front, 
Helmut von Moltke had been savoring his victories at the frontiers when he received news of Privitz's retreat. Moltke was apoplectic. Privitz had been ordered to hold the line against the Russians, not order a retreat and give the enemy a thoroughfare into Germany. If the eastern flank fell, it would mean disaster in the west, and it looked, at least for the moment, that the French and British were almost kaput. While historians can argue over whether Privitz had panicked at the sight of the Russians, or saved his army from certain doom, Moltke sacked the general for dereliction of duty. Overall command of German forces in the east was now open. To fix the now fragile theater, Moltke made two important appointments. To replace Privitz as commander of the 8th Army, he appointed Paul von Hindenburg, and as supreme commander, Erich von Ludendorff. The two men, prior to their new positions, had little experience with each other. Hindenburg, a veteran of the Franco-Prussian conflict, had been retired, but in 1914 had made it known that he was available if the Kaiser needed his services, while Ludendorff had distinguished himself as a brigade commander at Liege. These two guys, who not only looked eerily similar, would form one of the most effective command duos in history. More uniquely, Hindenburg was 67 years of age when he arrived to take over the 8th Army, while Ludendorff, 18 years his junior, was technically his superior officer, although in most cases, the two men would see one another as equals. Upon arriving to the front on August the 23rd, Hindenburg and Ludendorff soon discovered that the situation in Prussia was more in their favor than what was feared. Rennenkampf had stalled his advance, while in the southwest, Sanzenov continued to press on to Tannenberg. Hindenburg was quick to note that the Russian armies were slowly growing further apart. The Missourian Lake District, which on my map looks very small, but in reality extends for some 300 kilometers eastward, was a natural barrier separating the two armies, something which the Germans were eager to exploit. By deploying their forces separately, the Russians had made a fatal mistake, but it was Samsonov and Renenkampf who played directly into their hands. The two armies were acting independent of the other. I mean, they knew the other one was there, but this was not a cooperative venture by any stretch of the imagination, because the two Russian generals had a red-hot hatred of the other. Renenkampf and Samsonov had been corps commanders at the Battle of Mukden, the climactic land contest of the Russo-Japanese War, and both had a habit of publicly criticizing the other for the debacle. Unfortunately, this fracture at the top of Russian wartime leadership was just one of the countless others which would be exposed, and would help pave the way for the Bolsheviks under Vladimir Lenin to overthrow the Tsar in 1917. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Communication between the Russian 1st and 2nd armies was so bad, Samsonov had no idea that Renenkampf had stalled, and was unknowingly isolating himself with each passing day. As you can imagine, this was not lost on the Germans. Hindenburg and his division commanders, which included one with a French last name, Hermann von Francois, decided that if numbers dictated they could not deal with the Russians together, they would deal with them separately. The Germans improvised. It was agreed that the nine divisions composing the 8th Army would be divided into three separate groups. One group would stay facing Rennenkampf. This was done at the urging of Ludendorff, who feared the Russian general would press his advance at any moment. The remaining two groups were put on trains running parallel to the river Vistula, and sent south to meet Samsonov. Neither Russian had picked up on these movements. On August the 25th, Samsonov had crossed the frontier into East Prussia, and had begun the difficult task of leading his men through the forested region near Tannenberg. Like the Serbs in their campaign against the Austrians, the German detachments waited until the Russians were far enough in to make retreat impossible. The attack fell on two sides. One division cut east, taking Samsonov's army out of the knees, while the second encircled the now isolated units from the north. 
Machine guns and artillery from all sides wrecked havoc on the panicked soldiers. To make matters worse, the long march the Russians had endured had left many of them dehydrated and exhausted, and could rely on little more than their own instincts to survive. Entire columns caught in the beams of German searchlights were, as one observer noted, melted away by the cannonade. Countless Russian soldiers, cut off from their units, would succumb to starvation as they attempted to hide or make their way to safety. It took just over 72 hours for the Germans to complete the slaughter. The most enduring statistic of the Tannenberg disaster is how many prisoners fell into German captivity. Nearly 92,000 were captured, with an additional 30,000 killed in the Maelstrom. Samsonov had gone into East Prussia with 150,000 men, but only 10,000 managed to escape. Many of the wounded were left to die in the forest, or were mercifully shot by German patrols. On August 30th, Samsonov received word that he was being recalled to St. Petersburg. Unwilling to face the Tsar after such a disaster, he slipped away from headquarters and shot himself. By the time Renenkampf had learned of what was happening, it was far too late. Tannenberg was a resounding triumph for the Germans, and with their victories in the West, August turned out to be a pretty good month. But it should be noted that despite annihilating an entire Russian army, it did little to sway the fortunes of the war. For the Germans, it was a massive morale booster. East Prussia had been saved, and being able to parade 92,000 POWs through the streets is an undeniable sign of victory. On September 8th, the divisions which Moltke would redeploy prior to the Battle at the Marne would help drive Renenkampf out of German soil in a series of battles near the Mejurian lakes. Hindenburg and Ludendorff would become national heroes, whose aura of star power would come to eclipse that of the Kaiser. By the second week of September, Prussia had been cleared of Russian forces, and until 1945, the Germans would never again have to fight an invading army on their home soil. For the Entente Allies, Tannenberg was a crushing blow. The French and British were quick to send condolences to the Tsar, praising his nation's sacrifice in the name of their alliance. But there was a silver lining, as Moltke did end up weakening his attacking force to help booster the eastern line. Unfortunately for the families of the Tannenberg soldiers, these well wishes meant nothing. Bodies were simply buried in mass graves, or left to the mercy of the elements. There would be no telegrams or any confirmation to where a son, father, or brother had fallen. People at home were left to wait until time expired all options. This inhumane gesture by the Tsarist regime left a bitter resentment among the people, and for good reason. The autocratic and godlike statue of Nicholas II had taken a severe blow, and although censors were careful to minimize the blowback, it did little to stop the truth from being uncovered. To St. Petersburg, there is a vast population to pool from, and soon enough, the shattered remnants of Samsonov's armies would be built back to strength. Simply put, the Russians could stomach the losses, which would come to define their military strategy until 1917. Tannenberg has become symbolic of the bungling Russian war effort, but while events in East Prussia played out, additional Russian armies were engaging the Austrians in Galicia. Next week, we will angle our gaze to the Carpathian Mountains, as Hutzendorf, attempting to put his nation back in the good graces of its alliance partner, would open with a massive attack in southern Poland. The Russians would resist, and on the same day as the battles at the Marne, score a major victory which would forever change the fortunes of the Central Powers. That's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find Twitter and email information if you wish to get in contact with me. Comments, criticisms, and suggestions are always welcome. If you are interested in helping out The Great War Podcast, you can find us on iTunes and write us a 5-star review as that will help us stay afloat in the rankings and force me 
to continue turning out new episodes. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.